Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I am here today with Erica Ramos, the current president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Hi, Erica. Hi, Laura. So, Erica, when you were a little girl, <laughs> did you dream of being president of NSGC? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this, getting ready to, um, you know, kind of call into the podcast. And I said to sort of laugh at myself because even when I was writing, my incoming presidential address last year, I had to sort of laugh because I was said, you know, everybody should know that at one point, I would just every one of us is a, you know, a student and a new graduate and a new genetic counselor. And absolutely at no time during that period did I president of NSGC was in my future. So <laughs> it just goes to show you some people are planners, some people sort of move into things randomly, and I definitely fall into the latter. <laughs> so yeah, so I wanted to sort of, I was thinking about the people out there who sort of are genetic counselors and thinking, would this be a path for me? Who, enc who encouraged you? Like, when did when did you start thinking like, I want to run things? <laughs> well, I always want to run things, but <laughs> no, I mean, so I, I, I sort of said it in my presidential address and it's really probably one of the, the handful of quotes that I remember and think about quite a lot, which is the Richard Branson, if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity, but you're not sure that you can do it, say yes and learn how to do it later. <laughs> um, and I am very good at saying yes, and I'm pretty good at learning how to do things. So <laughs> that's really what has always happened with me. Um, you know, my I, I happened to be in a, a training program that did not do a lot of, uh, or that did not really sort of put students in a position to do a lot with NSGC. Of course, it was encouraged if you wanted to do it, but some programs, they're much more, let's say, forceful in, in installing their students in NSGC and getting them really engaged. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and after I graduated, I worked at Genzyme Genetics, which at the time, now it, part of Integrated Genetics, was the biggest employer of genetic counselors, certainly in California. So I had a really strong um, group of genetic counselors to talk with, to rely on, to work with. And so I didn't really feel like I was lacking that community piece until I moved to Las Vegas. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was the only cancer counselor in most of, I think there was one other cancer counselor in northern Nevada, but basically in the whole state. And I was doing something that I had never done before, which was cancer counseling. And so all of a sudden, I was in this position where I had no resources, I had no community, and NSGC really supported a huge piece of that for me. And that's, I think, when I got more involved with NSGC generally. Um, it was actually my new colleague, Brenda Finucan, uh, who's a past president of NSGC, who uh, I was working with on the Genetic Counseling Advanced Degree Task Force. So somebody randomly called me up and said, do you want to be part of this task force as a member at large? I said, sure. Um, and, you know, halfway through that meeting, Brenda said, you know, I think you'd be really great on the board of directors. Have you ever thought about um, running for the board? 
And I said, well, no. And she said, well, can I nominate you? Well, yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so that was, you know, really the start of really more of my leadership roles within NSGC. Um, So again, it's just sort of been, you know, a matter of joining when I needed it. And then, you know, saying yes and stepping up to volunteer um, when the opportunity presented itself. So I definitely want to get to the positives, but start telling me just for for other people, what are the negatives? What are the negatives of this job? Like, is there like, you shouldn't do that this if like, does it take over your all your time? (laughs) It is a fantastic job. I know that's not the negative, but it's hard to think (laughs) of the negatives because I really truly do. Oh, geez, Erica, don't give me that. Now, what I will say is it is time consuming. Um, It's a lot of writing, which I really didn't quite expect, although Mary Freivogel, our past president, had warned me about that. Um, It's a lot of writing, a lot of communicating, which, again, fortunately, I like doing, but I, I tend to write best on a deadline and, you know, at the last minute. So it's not always the funnest thing to feel like you're behind the eight ball when it comes to, to getting <laughs> things turned in. Um, but, you know, and it's and it's a lot of talking to people. It's a lot of media interviews. It's a lot of trying to figure out how to get NSGC's message out when different issues come up. And over yeah, the past see, year, that would, especially, be the, that would be the that would be the challenge for me because you got to stay on message. <laughs> yeah, <the stay> on <laughs> and it's not even your itself. own message. It's not even your message. You have to stay yeah. on their message. Well, and the really tough thing for me, and I think for a lot of us, is that I get so excited <laughs> about the things that we're doing, and we're we're educators. We want to teach people. And so it's really easy for me to turn an interview that probably should have a few main points that I keep coming back to into a 45 minute long conversation about genetic counseling and the state of genomics in the world and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is a challenge. There are definitely challenging parts to it. um, But I have to say I've enjoyed every minute of it. And it's a huge, huge, huge opportunity to build up really critical skills Um, I also had the opportunity, as all of our incoming presidents do, to attend a leadership institute, a really intensive leadership institute that's run by Smith Buckland. Um, And I did that last year, and that was really a phenomenal experience. I mean, it's it's hard to put into words how much impact that had on me um, and really making me think through and, you know, giving me the opportunity to think about myself and what I really wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve. Um, and oh, so, so let's, let's, let's go there. Cause so that's sort of my next set of questions. I'm like, all right, all right. We all know NSGC is like working on getting state licensure and perpetually this CMS recognition bill that we're always on the cusp of getting forever. Um, and you do the annual conference. I mean, and those are big NSGC jobs, not to put them yeah. down, but they're like, those are the standards, right? So what else, what's your role for, for the organization? Yeah, so this year, our really big effort, which hopefully people have seen me or read read what I've written about so far, um, was looking at our strategic plan for the next three years. And for those who may not be as familiar, our strategic plan is set by the board of directors and approved by the board of directors and will basically provide our roadmap through 2021 in order to focus our organization's efforts and to optimize our resources to make sure we're having 
the best possible impact on our members and how we work in our profession. Um, and so that's a big deal. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are really engaged in other professional organizations and without fail, they, they're constantly like, we just don't understand how much NS, how NSGC gets so much done. And, you know, certainly our incredible volunteers and our staff are the first people, the first things that I point to, but we also have a plan and we stick to it. And that's a really, really important piece to our success and to staying in front of all of the massive waves of changes that are likely to come and that we, we know will come at some point. Um, so it really helps to keep our organization on the forefront. And so that type of strategic planning um, is a really big deal and something that I've really enjoyed working on this year. And um, yeah, so, so, I, so I like, I like working with NSGC because I like genetic counselors. Genetic counselors are just, we're awesome. They are really a nice group of people. <laughs> I, 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 they are, they're, they're idealistic and they have a mission and they want to help. It's, it's all these cliches are actually true. Yep. Um, so it's a really nice group to, to, um, work with. And then there's something about working within a group that you're saying like, oh, the challenges are to come and so on. Um, I don't know if all of my experiences with NSGC are that it's like super forward looking. Um, in fact, I've heard some people at certain points in time when things come up, feel concerned that as an organization, it can be slow to respond. You know, there was like that wellness bill that where where it didn't get passed, but Congress was suddenly discussing a bill that would have compromised some of Gina's protections in the workplace. And we were all really concerned about it. And then there were other other similar sorts of things where other organizations stepped up with statements really quickly. And I don't think, so you want to talk about that? Like, is it is it impossible to, 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 to come up with a uh, a response to something like that? Is it is it just too controversial? What's the each situation, I think, varies. And I would differentiate between quick to respond and forward looking and forward leaning. So I think NSGC has been very strong, particularly as as the years have progressed, in being very forward looking and future leaning and making sure that we're trying to, as an organization, address the things that are coming up. Um, in terms of responses, there's a lot of things that, of course, happen behind the scenes. Um, you know, all of our executive office, our board of directors, um, president, president-elect, et cetera, all of us are working constantly when we see these things come up. And then often it is a strategic decision or it's, you know, a, a well-thought-out decision on how to act, what to act, what to do in a given circumstance. Um, and there are a lot of complexities that go into that. Um, and we really do look carefully at all those decisions. So I think when we've had the opportunity to, I think we always take everything very thoughtfully and very seriously, and we spend a lot of time discussing it and trying to make sure we get perspectives from as many people as we need to, to make the right decisions. Um, but that may not always end up in an action that either everybody in the membership will agree with. Or how that much, is, how much is of the time? Because I do, I do think that that you're right. That there's a lot of people there taking all these things very seriously. Because they're the people we know, right? We're a small or, or mm -hmm. um, community, small enough that you know these people, and I do think they're taking them very seriously. Um, 
how much of the time do you feel like the moves we're trying to make in terms of getting licensure, getting bills passed, handcuff you for what you might want to say? I think it's something that certainly is taken into consideration. And I think we have to be willing to balance out all of our decisions across what our strategic initiatives really are. And that's another really um, good reason why people in the membership should be aware of what our goals are, what our areas of focus are. And that's not to say that we will always make decisions in favor of those things as opposed to other things. Um, but we do need to consider how all of our actions and all of our decisions as a group, as a membership, as an organization can impact our ability to reach those primary goals. So, so I'm going to, so, so, so this is a, a going to highlight a forward looking thing that I know you're really excited about and I think is fantastic. You want to talk about the new diversity initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, our, as I said, our strategic initiatives just got approved by our board. This is late breaking news. And breaking you'll be news here on the Beagle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and everybody will hear about them a lot more at the conference. But one of the things that we were really excited about this year um, was the addition of a diversity and inclusion strategic goal. And, you know, as you said earlier, we are the type of group and the type of membership that really values diversity and inclusion. But as an organization, we hadn't put pen to paper and come up with a plan and really committed as an organization. And when I say committed, I also mean things like staff and volunteer time and financial resources to improve the diversity and inclusion of our, of our membership and of our organization. So the specific language in this goal is that NSGC will promote a culture of inclusivity that supports visible and invisible diversity and leverage that culture to expand the perspective re perspectives represented in our field, build community, and foster equity in genetic services. So this is great. I was curious. So I read that. And um, I mean, I, um, I could see it both ways. So obviously, building diversity means more minority representation in our field, which would be a fantastic thing. And I, I you know, I, I, I work at a training program and we struggle with that all the time, trying to make sure that our classes are more diverse and understanding that the, the need for it in a clinical practice like ours. Mm -hmm. So I was curious reading it. It's like when you were talking about that, did that include men or was that a separate issue? So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because certainly we do have a low number of men in our profession. Um, as Bob said, I think on your first uh, episode, it was about 5%. Um, and I think that there's a lot of open question around how much, you know, what diversity do we have to prioritize? And I think it's tough to say. We can't really say, okay, we need this many men and this many African-Americans and this many Hispanics because everybody's going to be different. There's no one path forward to how people work, live, and, you know, share their perspectives. So I think we have to consider everything when it comes to what that culture looks like. Um, and I, I think it's really important, you know, the, the visible and invisible diversity, particularly in genetics, I think is a really critical thing. You know, in genetics, we don't have 
the ability to just say that diversity means race or ethnicity or gender or mm-hmm. gender identity. It really means all sorts of, you know, medical people with medical issues, people with different, you know, neurological conditions, different capacities. It's a whole different ballgame when you're co- when you're talking about our field. Mm-hmm. That's and a great point. We need to be very proactive about making sure that diversity doesn't get boxed <laughs> into its own little, ex- you know, sort of exclusionary area. So part of what we need to make sure we're doing is to be inclusive of diversity <laughs> and make sure that we're touching on all the things that impact our profession, how we see different issues like, you know, genetic disease and how we how our perspectives impact our broader community in the physicians that we work with, the patients that we serve and all of that. Uh I I think that I think I mean I think that is like a really great point. Um, I'm still I'm still I, I I don't I don't have an agenda here. I'm actually personally torn as to whether or not I've I've heard people passionately talk about how in genetic counseling diversity initiatives should include men and other people say you know like that 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 the the the, the uh, <laughs> the importance of getting to sort of more underserved communities or stigmatized communities, which let's face it, neither of those things are men. Like, right. um, Of course. And And I think there's two different different ways. And I don't really know. I'm like thinking we're talking about where we spend our time, where we spend our money. It's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know that it, whether it will have the same impact or not. I'd sort of, I just wondered if you'd spend time thinking about that particular issue because it kind of always confuses me. Yeah, it absolutely is something that that has come up. And I think there's there's two ways to think about it. One is really looking at why you're seeking diversity mm-hmm. and why you're looking for a broad range of people that may come from diverse backgrounds. And from my perspective, a lot of that is much more around diversity of thought mm-hmm. than in color or where they grew up or what language they speak. We're, we're geneticists, so I could pick this two ways. We should either like our, if we're going to be talking about diversity and we're talking about biological diversity, then we like go right down to the haplotype level. Like none of this <laughs> simplified race BS. Like I'd be like, right down to the haplotype level. I'm like, they come in. what are your haplotypes? <laughs> we want many haplotypes. Um, but, uh, and more seriously, I think that uh, amusingly enough or whatever, I mean, sort of ironically enough that we should, we, we know how nonsensical some of these racial categories are. That's our field. Right. It's our business to know that we should know that when we're talking about diversity in our field, we are actually talking about culture, right? Like yes. background, culture, experience, not, yeah. um, biology. So I don't think it's a matter of necessarily trying to, by definition, pull more people in of one specific area, regardless of what that where that background comes from, mm-hmm. but really using the things that make those groups unique and making sure that we're recognizing them in whatever forms they take. And ideally, you know, going back to this particular effort and initiative is to take the learnings from those individuals and to try to use them to do a better job attracting a broader and more diverse community. Um, 
That's so well said. I think I'm going to like pivot here because you kind of like wrap that up so nicely. And I, I want to get a chance to talk about your, it's still called your new job. It's a pretty new job, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm only about three months in. So it's only pretty- three months in. That's nothing. So you're at Geisinger Health System. Now, are you in Danbury? Danville? No, Danville, I'm actually, sorry. I'm still in San Diego. Um, oh I, man, you got the life, right? <laughs> well, speaking of when to say yes and when to say no, um, the idea of starting a new job during my president year at NSGC and moving cross country was a little bit more than my yes could take. So <laughs> um, the move is not impossible, may, may still happen at some point, but it was not going to happen this year. That yeah. was going to be a little bit more than I was going to be able to manage. I so, um... I'm big on yes, but every I once ab- in a while, no's are really important. <laughs> I absolve you of living in Danville. <laughs> I get, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was very exciting. And I, you came in just at the time that they were announcing um, this big initiative to <laughs> stop me if I'm getting this wrong, but f- offer free, not extra cost, clinical exome sequencing as a part of routine care to all patients, or at least aspirationally offer that. And I assume that you coming in was very much around that initiative. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. So there's really a couple different parts of, um, what Geisinger is, is looking at and how I got involved. Um, obviously most people in our world are very familiar with the MyCode initiative. Um, and MyCode actually started back in 2007 as more, as much of a biobank as anything else. Um, But in 2014, we started sequencing, doing whole exome sequencing on portions of that biobank population. Um, And today... That was the Regeneron deal. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you were working... Let me just... Not everybody knows it. Oh, yeah. Geisinger was working... Geisinger Health Systems was working with Regeneron, giving them... And Regeneron was paying for exome sequencing for many of their patients that wanted to, to opt in. And in return, they got de-identified data, uh, genetic data, along with health records data for drug development. That's a yep. sort of a summary. So yep. this is something separate, right? Where Geisinger is itself doing yeah, sequencing. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that really, you know, was not surprising in retrospect, but became very obvious after the exome sequencing results started coming back was that we were sitting on results that had medical impact for patients um, and for our participants. And so that was the period of time when there was a decision made that we did need to consider returning results for specific findings. Um, And since that decision was made and those patients were consented for return of results, there have been about 900 uh, patient participants who've received what we would frame as as actionable genetic so, so let me just from the so, my code project. So I thought my code from the beginning was all about return of results but you had like I don't know it was more than the ACMG number what was it 70 something odd results yeah are you saying yep. an expanded list from that or that no so that's, that's based you... on that was based on at one point it was about 76 um you know those numbers have changed over time some things got added some things got taken off mm-hmm um, and so in total, it's been about 900 people who've, re- who've received results. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, all of the MyCode sequencing and, and everything was done under research. 
But the reality is that once we identified those mutations that we thought were significant and had them clinically confirmed, those participants really turned into patients that were seen and managed within the clinical setting. And, and, um, our CEO and, 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 and the, the, so, so, so again, from what I've seen of people sequenced, exome sequenced, mm-hmm. I feel like that 2% number yep. of people who end up getting something action, actionable back, though the mm-hmm. lists have grown and shrunk and grown, it seems pretty consistent, right? It's definitely pretty consistent. And a big part of that is, you know, again, A, what's defined as actionable. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're primarily considering dominantly inherited conditions um, where there's established care guidelines, those are obviously going to be a fairly limited list right now. Um, certainly you can make the case that things like carrier screening are also very actionable, particularly in certain populations. And that would expand the number of people who test positive pretty dramatically. So, you know, Geisinger we'll and others... from 2% to like 99%. Like to like everybody, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's, that's dramatic. Everybody to have genetic counseling or everybody to get some result or having their physicians address those results is a big thing. You know, pharmacogenomics is another big area of question. And same thing, you know, everyone's going to have something that's a little bit different if we do a full pharmacogenomics panel, but what do they really need to know now and what do their doctors need to know now? And so when we look at the frequency of a lot of these conditions, um, not surprising to anybody who's listening, is that BRCA1 and 2, Lynch syndrome, and familial hypercholesterolemia those three conditions make up about 50 to 60% of the cases that we're seeing. So regardless of how many other numbers get added for dominantly inherited medically actionable conditions, you're going to get a, a base about, fi- about 1% of your population who's just going to have those three. That's really interesting. So yeah, so those are the numbers. And, and, and what's going on now, now? So I said it was a little aspirational, right? Exome sequencing for everyone. So what, what is on offer right now? I know that's yep. the goal. Yeah. So um, basically, our CEO kept asking, you know, why do people this seems really important? If we're telling people, you know, he was hearing the stories and, you know, talking to the doctors who had patients that had tested positive, And, you know, he felt that it was important enough and impactful enough for those patients and their families to not have to participate in a research study to get access to that information. Um, So earlier this year at the health conference, he announced that we weren't going to wait for someday. We were going to do it today. And we were going to start offering clinical exome sequencing with a limited return of results Um, to our Geisinger population. Mm -hmm. So right now, anyone that has Geisinger health plan insurance um, is uh, and and is an adult, we are limiting it to over 18 right now, is eligible to get clinical exome testing through their primary care office. And then they would get back how many how many conditions are you looking at now? So right now we're at about 60. So it's about the ACMG genes plus a couple others. So like, but you are holding on to that data. I mean, because you could do that off a chip, right? Like you could, we could do that off a chip, but I think there's a couple different places and we are holding on to that data. So, 
you know, I think one of the key things that we've recognized around this and the reason to do Exome more th- or over a panel, for instance, um, is that we do have so much new information coming out. And with especially with all of our big genomics initiatives right now, my code included, we're learning a lot more about what things might be important. There are new discoveries coming out. Um, you know, I've been, there's been a lot of chatter recently um, about the BRCA1 analysis or uh, functional assays that uh, Jay Shunders lab did at the University of Washington. Yeah, a whole and basically other discussion, saying, really interesting. So yeah, like to reduce the variance of uncertain significance through some Exactly. Some, and some I, I kind of started a Twitter conversation around this. And just last night, Heidi Rehm said, you know, I would consider these to be strong functional evidence for disease. And in the absence of conflicting data, that makes these variants likely pathogenic. That's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> And so if you have this population that you want to go back to and very quickly try to update these things, you have to have the data. You have to be able to consider it more of a resource than a test. Mm-hmm. You have to start, we have to start from my perspective. Is it a resource for you for other ways? Like, do you, do you so have another a- Regeneron deal out there? Like, can you, can you use the de-identified data? Not tied as a- to our clinical products. Sorry? Yeah, not tied to our clinical products. I, just not tied to our clinical, the yeah. clinical effort. So when people get clinical sequencing separate from my code, mm-hmm. um, there is not another, that's not part of you're, our, you're not, you're not, account. you're not selling their data and you're, and you say you'll never will. Well, this so is- we, I, we do use data. I mean, we are a learning health system mm-hmm. and so we do use data for research and for improvements internally. And so as those re- I mean, just like with any hospital data, it's possible that, we might do specific investigations or other things with that to improve care. So it's different from something like with Regeneron where you're trying to do drug discovery, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. So for our clinical patients, you know, part of the reason that we introduced this is that research doesn't have a timeline. And the immediate goal with offering clinical exome sequencing is to find patients who need that information now, need those results now, and return those results. Over time, the goal is to be able to go back to that resource, that exome resource, and as there are new opportunities to give those same patients new insights, we can do interpretation, we can revisit those results in collaboration with their physicians and keep sort of updating that information as as much as possible. Sounds great. Uh, So this is a new... But this is this is a new thing. This isn't something that we have a lot of experience with giving back. I, I know everyone's been talking about it. And it's <laughs> been a little bit studied, but it's still really new to do on a bigger scale and be the genetic counselor. And I was just wondering, it's like, is there something about it that keeps you up at night? Like, what do you worry about happening? I think we have to recognize that with any effort, And there's always going to be decision points where individual hospitals, clinics, institutions have to make decisions about what's ready for prime time and what's not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at Geisinger, we have many years of experience working with exome data, working with clinical return of results. We have a large genetic counseling team of 25. We have a large genetic counseling research team. 
um, and really some fantastic genetic counselors who've led those efforts. And so I think that at Geisinger, we have the experience that we've done this. We've done this in 95,000 people. I know you really have. Like you have been so ahead of the curve. Geisinger is so genetics just fascinated. It's like, uh, it, it amazes me. And so I'm doing your ad for you. So you can give me a different <laughs> answer, Susie Sunshine. So, um, it, it is absolutely true that Geisinger has been, it's like it decided that was its brand was to be yeah. at the forefront of putting genetics into clinical medicine. Okay, I've done your ad. So what I want to <laughs> know is me. when you're doing it, when you're the genetic <laughs> counselor in charge of doing it, what what are we worried about that you don't do you worry about the, that you don't give something back and it's significant do you worry about the quality like what's the worry what, where's sure. what's the concern I, I mean anytime you make a decision about giving something back or not giving something back I think certainly we are very much erring on the side of being fairly conservative within the space that we're working in so mm-hmm. when it comes to returning we're not returning variants of uncertain significance right now you're, when doing it comes, a, you're doing an aggressive thing conservatively. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it's sort of funny because, I, slight tangent, but um, when I was working at Illumina, a big part of my job was working on programs that were really tied into predictive genome sequencing and starting to look at how we could implement that into clinical care. Um, And the sort of credo and motto that we kept saying was responsibly, but urgently. And Geisinger, I think, has that absolute same mission. They want to do it. We want to do it in the right way. But we don't want to keep saying, well, someday we'll do this or, you know, at some point we'll do this. (laughs) If you really are looking at how things are going to be implemented Sometimes you just have to do them and you have to test things and validate things within a whole health system because these are complicated systems. There's a lot of different moving pieces when you're starting to integrate exomes into clinical care. And unless we actually did it, we don't really know how it will work. And so we expect that there will be glitches. We expect that there will be things to change. And that's how all of medicine is. You know, we do a lot of testing and experimenting in medicine. Um, we just don't tell our patients that. <laughs> we, we, right. We're not really quite as we're so honest in genetics. So, we're so honest. We're going to tell you. We're just we don't know. We're just it's just an experiment. All right, we are so a bit over time, but that's fine. It's been very fun, and I think we should end with a plug for the annual conference, don't you? Yes, absolutely. Is it going to be great, Erica? Laura, you have no idea. We have already been, we have already set records for registration. Um, Our executive office is frantically working to secure hotel room space and all these other things. It's going to be bigger than it was in Seattle. And I'm incredibly excited about the conference generally. Um, Our education committee and our conference planning committee um, and abstracts committee have done just an absolutely phenomenal job. And there's some really, really interesting sessions. Um, the other well, thing that I'm really, really excited about is that we started really thinking about, you know, I've community a couple of times in this, this conversation, and we've started thinking a lot about community and what NSGC can do for our members. Um, one uh, board member who I, 
did not ask permission to officially quote, so I won't say who it is, um, had said to me, you know, if we take care of each other, we'll have more to give to our institutions and patients. And I feel like this is getting us back to our roots. So we're really focusing on our membership and how our membership interacts with the community. Um, and as a result, we're going to have two community building activities at the conference that are going to be new. Um, people will be seeing more information about this. But the first thing is that we're actually going to be doing a, a bone marrow donation drive for Be The Match. That and um, part of the reason that we're doing that is that earlier this year, um, our former operations director, Catherine Whitmer, passed away. And she was not only an organ donor, um, but her husband actually had received a stem cell transplant. And so she was very involved with Be The Match. Um, we also have the perfect population for it in a lot of ways. Um, ideally, they want younger donors, so under 44. And 70%, which this still shocks me, 70% of our PSS respondents were under 40 years old. So we are a young profession. <laughs> and as, as a young profession, we can really do something that makes no, a lot of impact. No, this is lovely. And I know that uh, a lot of the genetic counseling community was aware uh, that Catherine died and giving birth to her triplets. And um, can you, I know a lot of people would want to know, do you have any update on how things are going with her family? I do. And I, I'm thrilled to say it's a very happy update. Um, all three babies are at home. All three babies are doing very well. Um, and actually, we're home before their original due date, which for triplets is, you know, as, as a lot of everybody will know, is pretty surprising. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I know the I, I know the movement, the the um, the outpouring from the membership when that happened was uh, really something to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally have like goosebumps right now because just thinking about what our members did and, you know, again, that sense of community and supporting community. Um, you know, we as, as many people know, we had a GoFundMe, um, the GoFundMe along with an additional donation that came from NSGC. Um, raised money from more than 550 people individually and was over $60,000. That's so fantastic. that's just unbelievable. I mean, that's what our community does. Like in addition to being super overachievers and great volunteers and really hard workers, everybody really comes together to support the people who support our organization, which was really moving to me. Look at me sponsoring a podcast that is this upbeat and sort of like, uh, I don't know. What's that? <laughs> it's awesome. Joining. Yeah. Like, you know, Cheerleading. For, all right. Well, all right. All right. Sure. I give in. You've won me over, Erica. I, I tried <laughs> to know, you know, I'm just going to be cheerleader for the day and just go with it. All right. If Bob come to Atlanta, watch, it'll be great. Be like, very excited. The leader, a sister. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to interacting with people in Atlanta and getting suggestions on what they want to hear on the podcast. So, like, hit me up with that. Totally happy to have it. And, um, Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite.